There has been a complete fabrication of history. It's the biggest lie of the big lies that have permeated the 20, 20th century and the 21st century is to say that the Arabs were here before, that is, the Palestinians were here before the Jews when we were here for thousands of years, that we are the colonials when, in fact, it was the Arabs who were the colonials who dispossessed the original natives, and that is the Jews, that we came back to this land that was laid barren by the Arab conquest, brought it back to life, and allowed Arab immigration, what we call now Palestinian immigration, to come back in. And now they say to us, in unimaginable chutzpah, you know, they say, you don't belong here. They recreate ancient history, they recreate modern history, and this is a lot of hokum. It's ridiculous. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part five of this series on Zionism. Once again, you've just heard the voice of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. In addition to claiming that 7th century Arabs expelled the Jews from Palestine, Netanyahu also asserts that they essentially left the land barren. That deserted state is how Zionist settlers found it in the 19th century, when they set about development programs. Witnessing this development, Arab immigrants poured into the region and had the audacity to claim they had been there all along. Netanyahu uses the Hebrew word chutzpah, meaning gall or audacity, to describe this. That seems accurate. It certainly does take a special kind of gall to steal somebody else's land, then claim it was yours all along, and that they had actually stolen it from you. An accurate description then. But the question is, to whom should it apply? The Arabs or the Zionists? Let's begin to look at the land question. Historically, the Ottoman Turks forbade foreigners from owning land inside their empire. As their power diminished, external pressure from European nations caused a relaxation of these restrictions during the 1860s. This immediately led to some small-scale Jewish immigration into Palestine. The first active investor in Zionism was Sir Moses Montefiore, who sponsored several surveys of Jews in Palestine throughout the 19th century. In 1839, it was estimated that there were 9,000 Jews living there, a number that rose to over 30,000 by Montefiore's final survey in 1875. The Ottoman census of 1878 confirms this number for Jews, estimating that half were recent immigrants, and counts 403,000 Muslims and 43,000 Christian Arabs. Jews therefore constituted around 5% of the total population. Immigration substantially expanded after 1881 due to the increased persecution of Jews in Russia after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. There were two waves between then and 1914, which brought an estimated 70,000 Jews to Palestine. The vast majority of these immigrants were not ideological Zionists, rather they were simply fleeing persecution. Facing harsh conditions, it's estimated that the majority of them returned home, this number is in comparison to the over 1.5 million Jews who emigrated to the United States during the same period, never to return. This contrast gives a sense of how appealing Zionist ideology actually was. The initial wave of immigrants was supported by Edmund James de Rothschild, who created a wine industry, including vineyards and a glass factory. There are perhaps three aspects to the controversy over Jewish immigrants. The first concerns how they acquired the land, the second regards what they did with it, and the third concerns the sheer number that arrived. The issue of acquisition is a downstream consequence of the Ottoman Land Code of 1858. 
The code required all land ownership to be centrally registered. The Ottoman government was motivated by a desire to increase tax revenues and to ensure no one was able to evade conscription. As being taxed and conscripted was not on any peasant's list of priorities, they evaded registration wherever they could. Where they couldn't fully evade, they might substantially understate their holdings. On the other side of this coin, vast areas were registered by merchants and government administrators who had no legitimate claim to it. People who may have occupied the land for generations suddenly became tenant farmers owing rent. Land might even be claimed by the sultan himself. In the book The Other Israel, collectively authored by the Matzpen, Hebrew for Compass, a revolutionary socialist and anti-Zionist group, it is claimed that the aforementioned Lord Rothschild acquired his land this way. Quote, the baron bought land from the feudal nobleman, sometimes by bribing the Ottoman administration, and drove the peasants off the land. The expropriated peasants were men employed as labourers in the baron's settlements, following the usual colonial pattern. End quote. However negatively one views Rothschild, he did not refuse employment to Arabs, and used technology to increase the productivity of the land, making it capable of sustaining more workers. Rothschild sought integration between Arabs and Jewish immigrants, and his estates were not subject to the later violence that broke out. Writing to the League of Nations in the 1930s, he states that, quote, The struggle to put an end to the wandering Jew could not have as its result the creation of the wandering Arab. End quote. Even if we accept the most negative interpretation of Rothschild, as a colonialist exploiter, his actions were comparable to what Palestinian peasants could expect from their fellow Arab exploiters. The real trouble started in the early 20th century, when a more hardcore Zionist ideology came to Palestine. You may recall from the last episode, I quoted an 1895 entry in the diary of Zionism's founding father, Theodore Herzl, saying... We must expropriate gently the private property on the estates assigned to us. We shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in the transit countries whilst denying it any employment in our country. End quote. By 1907, this became the policy adopted by Zionist immigrants. Arabs were removed from land purchased, often from illegitimate landlords, by the newly created Jewish National Fund. They were then denied any employment. As an example of this policy, I'll look at the biggest individual acquisition, the Sursok Purchase. The Sursoks were an aristocratic Orthodox Christian family from Beirut. In 1872, as a way of clearing their debts, the Ottoman government sold an area of Palestinian land known as the Jezreel Valley to them. They would ultimately acquire more than 90,000 acres there. The Ottomans owned this land by fiat, and not in any way that could be considered legitimate. By the 1890s, the Sursoks were in financial difficulties themselves, apparently owing to a bad run at the Parisian gambling tables, and sought to sell their land on to the Zionists. The purchases began in 1901, but due to resistance from the Ottomans, they were suspicious of both Jewish and Russian intentions, they proceeded in a piecemeal fashion. One purchase in 1911 led to the eviction of a thousand Palestinian peasants who saw what was happening as a Jewish invasion. They thought the Zionists were the Crusaders come again. From 1920, under the British mandate, all such restrictions were removed. 
The British deemed Palestinian farmers to be tenants, and British soldiers were dispatched to enforce evictions. During the 20s alone, further purchases of Sursok land led to the eviction of over 1,700 families, totaling over 8,000 people. This amounts to the full clearance of over 20 villages, with many of the inhabitants said to have ended up in shanty towns. The Sursok purchases were the biggest, but by no means only, land purchases of this nature. Similar acquisitions in the area of Wadi al-Haraf led to a further thousand evictions. The British Shore Commission, established after the outbreak of violence in 1929, estimated that 90% of land purchased by Zionists was from absentee landlords living outside of Palestine. The Hope Simpson Inquiry, of the same year, acknowledged that, in fairness to the Zionists, and in line with Theodore Herzl's position, they had, quote, paid high prices for the land, and in addition they paid to certain of the occupants of those lands a considerable amount of money which they were not legally bound to pay. But that, the result of the purchase of land in Palestine by the Jewish National Fund has been that land became extra-territorial. It ceases to be land from which the Arab can gain any advantage either now or at any time in the future. Not only can he never hope to lease or cultivate it, but, by the stringent provisions of the lease of the Jewish National Fund, he is deprived forever from employment on the land. End quote. A 1960s quote from the infamous Israeli general, Moesh Dayan, is informative. Begin quote. We came to this country, which was already populated by Arabs, and we are establishing a Hebrew, that is a Jewish, state here. Jewish villages were built in the place of Arab villages. You do not even know the names of the Arab villages, and I do not blame you, because these geography books no longer exist. Not only do the books not exist, but Arab villages are not there either. There is not one place built in this country that did not have a former Arab population. End quote. The second controversy I mentioned was that of Zionists' refusal to employ Arab labour. The initial wave of Jewish immigration was marked by a sense of internationalism. Whether it was the capitalist internationalism of Lord Rothschild, or the socialist internationalism of Russian Jews, they had no problem working with Arabs. This changed around the turn of the century with the rise of Labour Zionism, a doctrine that saw no contradiction between socialism and nationalism. It's not hard to see the Zionist perspective on this. They are a tiny minority, emigrating to a hostile land, engaged in a project which is almost guaranteed to fail. In such an environment, it only makes sense to support and build up your own people. The Hope Simpson inquiry goes on to describe Arab unemployment as being serious and general, and that, quote, it is impossible to view with equanimity the extension of an enclave in Palestine from which Arabs are excluded. The Arab population already regards the transfer of lands to Zionist hands with dismay and alarm. These cannot be dismissed as baseless in light of the Zionist policy described above. The policy of the Jewish Labour Federation is successful in impeding the employment of Arabs in Jewish colonies and Jewish enterprises of every kind. There is therefore no relief to be anticipated from an extension of Jewish enterprise unless some departure from existing practice is effected. End quote. A quote from the Mapai Labour Party leader, David Hakoen, in 1969, colours this situation. Begin quote, I remember being one of the first of our comrades to go to London after the First World War. There, 
I became a socialist. When I joined the socialist students, English, Irish, Jewish, Chinese, Indian, African, we found that we were all under English domination or rule. And even here, in these intimate surroundings, I had to fight my friends on the issue of Jewish socialism, to defend the fact that I would not accept Arabs in my trade union, to defend preaching to housewives that they not buy at Arab stores, to defend the fact that we stood guard at orchards to prevent Arab workers from getting jobs there, to pour kerosene on Arab tomatoes, to attack Jewish housewives in the markets and smash the Arab eggs they had bought, to praise to the skies the Jewish National Fund that had bought land from absentee landlords and thrown the peasants off the land, to buy dozens of acres from one Arab is permitted, but to sell, God forbid, one Jewish acre to an Arab is prohibited. To take Rothschild, the incarnation of capitalism, as a socialist and name him the benefactor. To do all that was not easy. And despite the fact that we did it, maybe we had no choice, I wasn't happy about it. End quote. Finally, there is the issue of immigration. You heard Benjamin Netanyahu claim that the increase in the Arab population overwhelmingly came from immigration. As evidence so overwhelmingly leans in the opposite direction, it's hard to know what to say. Whilst there was some Arab immigration into Palestine, the almost doubling of the population during the first half of the 20th century is broadly considered to be the result of natural increase. The Jewish population rose from 30,000 in 1878 to 600,000 by 1948, overwhelmingly as a result of immigration. Understandably so, given what was going on in Europe at the time. This raises certain philosophical questions regarding what makes a society, or a people, or a nation. Do such things even exist, or are we all just a collection of individuals? I'm not going to try and answer this, beyond pointing out the obvious, that a large influx of foreigners carrying with them an ideology of domination is never going to go down well with the natives. This is true irrespective of how much compensation you give them when you boot them off their land. As I've mentioned, the combination of these three factors led to periodic outbursts of violence from 1920 onwards. This violence destroyed idealistic visions of harmony between the different communities and brought ever more extreme people to power. This is what I'll go on to look at in the coming episodes. Before I conclude, I will quote the Hope Simpson report one more time to contrast the aggressive approach to land acquisition of the Zionist Jewish National Fund with the more conciliatory approach of Baron Edmund de Rothschild's Palestine Jewish Colonial Association. The report reads, quote, Insofar as the past policy of the Palestinian Jewish Colonial Association, the PICA, is concerned, there can be no doubt that the Arab has profited largely by the installation of the colonies. Relations between the colonists and their Arab neighbours were excellent. In many cases, where land was bought by the PICA for settlement, they combined with the development of land for their own settlers similar development for Arabs who previously occupied the land. All the cases which are now quoted by the Jewish authorities to establish the advantageous effect of Jewish colonisation on the Arabs of the neighbourhood, and which have been brought to notice forcibly and frequently during the course of this inquiry, are cases relating to colonies established by the PICA before the Jewish National Fund came into existence. In fact, the policy of the PICA was one of great friendship for the Arab. 
Not only did they develop the Arab lands simultaneously with their own when founding colonies, but they employed the Arab to tend to their plantations, cultivate their fields, to pluck their grapes and their oranges. As a general rule, the PICA colonization was of unquestionable benefit to Arabs of the vicinity. It is also very noticeable in travelling through the PICA villages to see the friendliness of relations which exist between Jew and Arab. It is quite a common sight to see an Arab sitting in the veranda of a Jewish house. The position is entirely different in the Zionist colonies. End quote. Perhaps then, another world was possible. Thank you for listening. I'll link to the various documents and books I've quoted in the info box. I would suggest the best guide to the British reports and land acquisition in this era is Jeremy Hammond's work, in particular his book Benny Morris's Untenable Denial of Ethnic Cleansing in Palestine. My details are in the box, and any donations to keep the show going are greatly appreciated. I'd also like to say thank you very much indeed to the people who have donated. I've also included a link to Christian Aid's Gaza Appeal.